Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin. I wanted to talk today about a little bit more about the reparations task force because when I was in Sacramento with my friend in Casey, hey girl, um, she, myself, and her mother were having a conversation about it because her mom actually knew some of the people who were at the meeting. I think I told you all I went to, I don't know, I think I did talk about that, but I went to what was supposed to be a meeting with one of these San Diego council members, as well as two genealogists, and her mother knows the genealogists who were there. So we were talking about some of the misconceptions surrounding what it takes to be eligible and where some of the confusions coming in at. So I'm going to link the updated article to the one that I mentioned the last time I did this podcast because I believe that the article I was referencing was from February and this one was just written at the end of September. So it's from the same source. It's calmatters.org. But like I said, I will link the specific article in the description of this podcast. One of the things that I think is interesting is that people, and this includes a task force member who was cited in this article, a lot of people think that because California didn't technically have slavery because it wasn't considered one of the Confederate slaveholding states, that somehow the state should be absolved. When really, you know, especially if you've taken my class in this last year, I have been very clear about the fact that it's not just about the legacy of slavery, it's about the hundred plus years that happened after slavery. So of course, you know, most people know of the history of the specific lineage of people who can trace their roots in this country back to an enslaved person, okay, which is very hard to do because of the inaccessibility of records, as well as the destruction of records and people changing their names, either once they were free, or maybe if they were fugitives from, you know, a racist law system that was trying to apprehend them. So I think that has to be noted here. But in addition to that, you know, there were enslaved people who were brought to California by their masters. And because of the Fugitive Slave Act, which was passed, I believe, in 1851, but I'm not 100% sure, it was around that time period, it was illegal for them to just assume that they were free because they were brought into a free state. And that is essentially what the Dred Scott case was about. So I'm sorry, the Fugitive Slave Act was about if you run away, you know, that you're technically not free because you can be apprehended and taken back. The Dred Scott decision, which is around that same time period, is passed, which says that if you're enslaved and your master takes you to a free state, you are not free just because you're in a territory that does not have slavery. Because of course, as we know, slavers did take their slaves, their enslaved into Northern states, Western states, et cetera, that did not technically allow slavery. But again, they were not able to necessarily just be free. Some of them did sue for their freedom, but that's a whole legal process. Most of these people just had to remain enslaved in the free state, and that includes California. So to me, it's troubling that we have somebody who is a political leader, who, especially who's on this task force, who does not, at least the way the article is written, it doesn't seem like they understand these very important nuances that having a historian involved some way would help clarify. 
California was one of these states that, again, did not free people when they were brought into the territory and into the state as a slave. And another thing is, like I was mentioning, it's not just about the technical time of enslavement. So it's not just because of what happened from 1619 until 1865. In addition to that, we still have, after you know the emancipation of slavery in 18, the full emancipation of slavery in 1865, we also have, even in the Western states, including California, redlining, um, which was taking place in the post-World War II era. So when that suburban boom happened after World War II and all these families were buying up homes, redlining made it so that way Black people, Black Americans, could not live in most neighborhoods in major cities So that within California. So that's the Bay Area cities, the L.A. Uh, surrounding area cities, and San Diego as well. So that continued through the 1980s. And I'm very clear, I want to be very clear about that because it's not something that only lasted for a small period of time and went away in the 60s. It did not go away for another 20 years after, roughly 20 years, after the civil rights movements that we're all aware of in the 1960s. Something else is housing covenants. There were many cities in LA, the Bay Area, um, many parts of San Diego that did not allow black people to live in them. So in LA, for example, black people couldn't live in Beverly Hills. Black people couldn't live in Culver City. Black people couldn't live in Torrance. They couldn't live in couldn't live in Burbank. They couldn't live in Hawthorne. In the Bay Area, they couldn't live in Antioch. And that included blacks and Chinese. But of course, in this case, we're talking about like just black people. Um, They couldn't live in pretty much the San Francisco city limits. They could only live in certain parts of Oakland. They could only live in East Palo Alto. Like all these things were by design. And so it's again, it's not just about the period of slavery. It's about what happened after that into the 1980s. And in the 1980s, 1980, that's when in the late 80s, they finally made these overarching sweeps and said, you cannot have racist higher, excuse me, you can't have racist covenants that prevent black people from living in your city. You can't have Um, even racist practices, like I was about to say, that prevent them from being hired in certain jobs or getting certain pay. All of these things are part of it. So like I kind of just segued into the next thing, employment. Most places of employment in California, because we didn't have the Equal Opportunity Act, we didn't have affirmative action yet, they could not get jobs in a lot of major companies. They couldn't get jobs and easily at universities when it came to education, They couldn't get admission to law schools and medical schools because these things specifically prohibited them until the equal opportunity clauses were passed that included other populations as well. So that's where you start having these statements that say you can't discriminate against someone's race, their national origin, their religion, their color, their creed, their disability or other ability. Like All of that is part of this. It didn't exist yet into the 1980s. 
And like I tell my students, just because it was made finally legal and equal in the 1980s, that doesn't mean that it matters anymore. Because again, if you've been kept out of living in the nicer parts of San Diego, like La Jolla or certain parts of Mission Bay, etc., even though even though legally you can live there now, you have already been priced out. You have already been priced out of being able to get into those homes because with redlining as a co-conspirator in this, the homes that you were kept out of are valued much higher and they are purposely valued much higher so that you can't afford to buy into that neighborhood and that environment, right? That's how you're kept out of it. So... I say that to say that when people make it sound like, oh, California is absolved because it wasn't a slave state, it's not just about slavery. Now, I'm sure plenty of people on the task force do understand that. I'm sure they've mentioned that in their 500-page report of the history of racism and slavery in this state. But I thought that was interesting that they specifically highlighted that, and it kind of obviously set me off because it's disingenuous, and it just shows how much of a disconnect there is. Another thing is people are not going to pass this. This is not something that can be voted on, which is why when they decided to do it and the governor signed it saying that it would happen, they didn't put it on a ballot. Black California is, I think, roughly four to six. No, I think it's six percent of the state. And that's not that's not even breaking down within that six percent. How many people are actually Americans who've been here for many decades, even into the night, excuse me, into the 19th century, going back to the 19th century. Many of those people are going to include people who are black, technically racially, but have other national origin points and who are immigrants to the state and to the country. This is not for that lineage of people. And that's something that I was talking about with my friend's husband, uh, my friend in Casey's husband's name, Pierre. Hey, Pierre. And he, for example, is Haitian. And he's lived here since he was a kid. And so we were talking about the fact that, yes, other states should have it. But, you know, this is for people who have a clear history of having been generationally and over many generations not able to buy in to being citizens of this country because we have been kept out of these spaces and also acknowledging that many of the things that were set in place in the 1960s with Lyndon Johnson, in the 1980s with affirmative action, did not go to black Americans who had been here and who had had the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. It A lot of it went to people who were black immigrants to the country, who already had spaces of privilege in their own countries, which is why they were able to immigrate here in the first place. And if you know about America's immigration quota, and laws, then that makes perfect sense of what I'm saying. Now, one of the things that they wanted to have be clear when they had the meeting in March was that they recommended that Black Californians would have to establish lineage to enslaved ancestors to be able to cash in on this, you know, rep- reparations initiative. Now, like I mentioned in the first podcast I did about this, is that that is going to be very difficult. Now, from what I understand, it's not required as of now that you have to be able to prove that you had someone in the country who was enslaved. 
I had mentioned in the last time I did the podcast that it did also say in the initiative that you needed to have someone who was in the country in the 19th century, whether they were enslaved or not. And of course, there have been challenges to that. So there have been some people who've said that, you know, you need to be able to prove um, ancestry to an enslaved person. And then some who've said you don't need to, that as long as you had a family member in the nation in the 19th century, you would qualify under these, under this legislation. So from what I understand, even though that was proposed stipulation, it is not something that was formally um, set in stone. So it's not formally set in stone that you have to have an enslaved ancestor in this country dating back to the 19th century. Now, something that's important is if some of you may know that recently Gavin Newsom vetoed the proposal that this task force would get another year to, you know, talk about the effects of this and how it was going to be um, made whole, right? Like how the reparations was going to be distributed and to whom. And initially you think, okay, well, why would he veto something like that? But the other side of it is like, they don't need any more time. They've had a 500 page report. You know, we have plenty of books that have been written by black scholars, white scholars, like people who study economics, who know the effects of these things. They've already quantified in general, how much these things have been, you know, detrimental to the black community and to black Californians in specific. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about some of the facts and figures that they came up with. So it said that they had four economic consultants that calculated that each black Californian who lived in California between 1933 and 1977 experienced a housing wealth gap of $223,000 or $5,000 for each year in the period. The experts said that number, which is the difference between the average value of all homes in California and the value of black owned homes could be considered for reparations. Now, that's important because, like I said, redlining and housing covenants forced black people into certain areas, and those areas that they owned homes where they were allowed to were consistently devalued and not able, they weren't able to cash in. Like These aren't the people who are making all this money with the real estate bubble going even the way that it is now. Mass incarceration also plays a role in this. So with the quote unquote war on drugs that most of us at this point who've studied the time period know was complete BS, that black people were disproportionately incarcerated and given longer sentences. So it does mention here specifically for that group of people, it says that Black incarcerated black residents were out $124,628 or 204, excuse me, $2,494 per year for unpaid prison labor and years of lost income. It also mentions healthcare disparities. So it says that the economic consultants noted that black Californians have the shortest life expectancy of any group at 71 years, which is 7.6 years shorter than white Californians. It said black Californians also faced higher death rates from cancer than other racial groups because, of course, like I mentioned before, with redlining, which I did a podcast about that too, a lot of them were placed in industrial areas. So when they are living near plants and when they're living near industrial waste zones, etc., they're going to have higher rates of these types of diseases. 
and we've talked about before, it also mentions that black mothers were four times more likely to die in childbirth than any other group in the state. Although there's no actual price tag on a year of life, it says, for statistical purposes, some economists use a $10 million valuation for a person's entire life. This group of economic consultants calculated the dollar amount for the gap in life expectancy for black Californians to be worth $127,226 per year. Now, the task force is supposed to submit its final recommendation to the legislature in June of 2023, and the next meeting that they're having about this is December 15th and 16th in Oakland. So, excuse me, December 14th and 15th in Oakland. So it's very, very important that we know about this for the people who are going to be trying to make sure that this is going to help benefit the majority of black Americans and black, excuse me, black Americans within California. One of the things I know that, you know, Pierre had mentioned when we were talking about this recently was that, well, you know, maybe other black people within the country should be able to tap in to California to receive those reparations. And I was telling him, I was like, no, that's not fair, right? Because as a Californian, and I would say this transcends race, you know, we pay the price of living in the state. So the money isn't going to go as far in California as it would in Georgia or as it would in Kansas or as it would in Texas. So it's very important that it goes to the people who have dealt with these systemic injustices within the state and who ha- who are residents of the state. And I think one thing that was not mentioned in the article, but is very important, and we'll see how they do that, is how long you have to have been a resident of the state in order to cash in on this reparative justice, right? Because somebody who, you know, maybe left for a period of time, but lived most of their life in California, like they should be eligible, as opposed to somebody who's, you know, lived in various states, but only has been in California for five years, right? Like that would wouldn't be quite the same. And I'm sure they'll have some type of evaluation, not evaluation, I mean a type of valuation on what type of reparation that you're going to receive and how much that will equate to per year. And then we also have to consider people who are no longer living because one of the things I've talked about before is that black World War II veterans were not able to use their GI Bill, like roughly half of them. So that's going to include black Calvets who weren't able to find a place to live, even though they had these benefits and they were supposed to be able to use them because, hello, they fought in the war. Um, that's going to also include, I would think, hopefully something so that if the person is no longer alive, because most World War II veterans are already passed, that it would hopefully go to their children who are still alive today, right? Who weren't able to, again, have that experience as children and be set up for success as adults because of these racist practices. But that's what I mean when I say like, who's, I mean, I'm not going to be able to get there for this meeting in Oakland, but are there people who are going to be going or writing these council members who are going to like bring up things like that, right? Is this something that is on their radar? That's, these are like important bits of information, I think, to making sure that it's done in a holistic way that is considering these cases and people who are already deceased, but whose children are still alive, who were impacted in that way. Now, apparently there's a discussion surrounding what 
type of reparative justice is going to happen. So some people have said that there should be cash payments. Some have said that it could be in the form of free college tuition or housing loan programs or zero interest loan programs. I'm hoping that they'll make it that way people can choose. Because honestly, people who already have their degree, right, they don't need zero tuition, right? But they should be able to tap in some other way. Or if they already own a home or property, they may not need to have like a zero interest loan program or some type of a housing program to help them because they've already done those things. So I'm hoping that they'll let people decide, but it doesn't sound like they have like anything definitive, but at least they're considering multiple ways. Another thing I want to talk about is the fact that many groups have received reparations throughout the world. So it's not a new concept to repair monetarily something that was done that was racist in practice. So for many Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II for the three-year period from 1942 to 1945, they received $15,000 in reparations. And that would be the equivalent of 88 when they were given that. But that would be the equivalent of about $38,000 today adjusted for, you know, inflation. So that's a a large chunk of money then and now. So I also wanted to, I mentioned that because there is a Japanese American, um, Californian on the task force. And sometimes people make it sound like this idea of reparations is avant-garde or is completely unheard of. And it's not, it's just, it hasn't been done to this group. And that's why I was saying earlier, we can't just leave this up to something in the state or in the nation that we're going to have to vote on. I mean, 6% of the people who are, you know, black, who identify as black Californians are not going to somehow be protected and have their history considered, all these facts and figures considered by the 94% who are not black, who can decide the fate of these people. Like that's racist ideology in itself because they haven't had their best interest. They still continue to not have their best interest, right? These things, these housing wealth gaps, healthcare gaps, um, everything, it's not changed. It's not gone away. We're still dealing with the effects of the history of it. And we're still dealing with trying to make it more equal and equitable today because it still is not, you know, they didn't make people vote on whether or not they should give Japanese Americans, um, reparations. They didn't take a vote and say, well, should we give these people their reparations? And, you know, all these people voted yes. And so that's why it happened. They did it because they knew that it was wrong and they knew that it was immoral and they knew that it was based in a racist ideology, that an executive order rounding them up, even though 97% of them had no national tie to Japan, was only rooted in racist ideology because we know that they did not do that to the German Americans. Okay, that that didn't happen. They were still allowed to thrive. So this being said, there are also other states that have given reparations. So North Carolina has offered reparations for some of the people, largely women, who were forcibly sterilized in that state. But a lot of those people didn't know necessarily that they were able to get it. And of course, a lot of these people had already passed away. But that's something that did, there was an initiative to do that. Most of the time when we have class action lawsuits, right? I mean, it's interesting to me how even the term reparations is like politicized, right? Nobody would politicize 
the you know water case that happened in what Hinkley right with the PG&E and all these you know these water pipes that they let people drink that had chromium in it and they all got cancer or their children got sick and you know they had to worry about all these medical bills these people received reparations because what happened to them was completely wrong but people wouldn't argue about that but somehow when we're talking about reparative justice that is due to people because of long-standing racist institutions somehow it's like well I don't know you know should we give these people the money and all of that doubt comes from the roots of racism the roots and the ideology and some of you may have thought it and it's okay I'm not gonna make you tell me but the idea that like black people shouldn't get money or that when they get it they're going to misspend it they're going to do something that's not going to help their communities like all of those racist ideologies are rooted in the caricaturing of us as a people in this country because once we were no longer enslaved we had no value we had no social value in a nation that didn't want us in the first place and that didn't want us to be citizens after we were freed and set up Jim Crow, redlining, housing covenants, racist school admission standards and bars for, you know, bars from not letting people come into the schools at all. Like, so I guess I should say a ban, not a bar, but you understand my point. The healthcare disparities, not believing people that black women are four times more likely to die from complications of being pregnant, not even just childbirth. These things are important. So what I've been encouraging my students to do is to start compiling what they can from their family history. A lot of people may know that they had family who, you know, can trace back to a certain time period. But like I mentioned in the first podcast about this, you want to take advantage of as many free resources as you can. So that's going to be looking at, I mean, I did leave links to the last in the description box of the last podcast about this. I also recently posted something on my Instagram about it, which is at Natalie History, because there is a new archive that's available to people to look up, you know, if they have ancestors who they could, you know, hearken back to. And it's called the Freedmen's Bureau Search Portal. So you can look up the, well, the Instagram is at NMAAHC, which is the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History, if you want to get a link to that. But looking and trying to find names of you know ancestors the day they were born the state they were born because again it, you don't have to have been here the whole time california wasn't even a state until 1850 and like i said there were people who weren't able to even get here because of like not being able to take the train not being able to leave the south like all these things play into why there weren't more black californians than there already were but the point is that is having the names dates locations of birth are going to be very, very important. And then sharing those resources with your friends and family so that they can look up the people who they know of. And the last thing I wanted to talk about is something that came up when I went to that meeting. I don't remember when it was. I want to say it was in September um, about this and it was not really productive, but I don't want to, you know, talk about that in this podcast. But um, 
one of the things I mentioned when I got the mic, because <laughs> I wanted to you know, stand up and share something because they let people ask questions in the audience, is that this cannot be rooted in blood quantum. So what I mean by that is that there are probably going to be people who are going to be coming out of the woodwork and trying to claim that they have black ancestry and that because they have a great, 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 great grandparent that who happened to be black, that somehow they believe that they should benefit from this. And my response to them is sit down and keep that same energy. Because again, it cannot be rooted in blood quantum. And I said this during that meeting. The group that was there, the genealogy group, they were giving away some DNA kits to people. And like I said, you know, during that Q&A part is that most people have mixed ancestry. Most people do. It's very rare to find somebody who only has, you know, like DNA origins to one continent of people or one group of people. A lot of white people have mixed in ethnicities and heritages and races. A lot of black, most black Americans have been mixed in at some point with natives, Asians, or whites because of our, because of our proximity to people. And that, with that being said, this is not supposed to be for people who have a you know, great grandparent who was black or a great grandparent who was half black. Because again, them and their parents don't live that experience. They have not lived that experience. They are not identifiable as black people. And so it would be disingenuous to just make this about blood quantum because it will not go to the people who it's supposed to go toward. Now, of course, In this article, they're talking about the fact that, you know, black Californians are, you know, 6% of the population. But again, that's with people who are self-identifying. So we'll see what happens, okay? But I'm hoping that they'll be very diligent about the fact that it doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that you haven't had some mixing in, but that, you know, you and your family, you have clear (laughs) black phenotype, have lived that experience, right? That you're not showing up and claiming that, oh, you know, we have, I had a black grandparent in, you know, 1890 who was here, which is technically the 19th century, like they want, right? Or I had a great, a, a black enslaved person or, you know, someone who was maybe mixed race, you know, black and native or black and white and whatever, and they lived that experience. It's like, yeah, they did, but you didn't. <laughs> this isn't for you. And this is also very important too. Like I've been talking about how lineage is very important here because it's not for people who have immigrated here within the last, you know, one, two, three generations. It does not mean that they have not experienced racism as a black person. But again, this isn't just about you being black. It's about the lineage of people. And one of the books I have my students read in class, in my classes, is The Jim Crow Guide. And I've mentioned it before on the podcast. It's by Stetson Kennedy. 
having ancestry to a different, I shouldn't say ancestry, having national identity to another nation outside of the U.S. has given even black people privileges. And he talks about that in the book. Someone coming over from South Africa or Nigeria who is black, right? Like, just like me, like sits firmly within the phenotype of blackness. They have historically had an easier time and had more access because they then, you know, someone like myself or my ancestors, because they were not the descendants of the enslaved. So they have been allowed to have more privileges in line with what we think of with white society, because lineage has always mattered. It's just not something that we have necessarily talked about within our racial demograph. And I've heard more about it in the last five or six years. I'm glad more people are talking about it. I'm very intentional about it. And when I explain to students about why lineages are important and why it's important to consider lineage when it comes to things like this is because you have to consider it. And what I usually tell them is, is that, yes, I'm a black woman. I'm a black American woman. If I mean, I identify as that and I'm, you know, phenotypically that way. Like nobody would argue that when they look at me. But if I moved to Jamaica, and I usually give this example, if I moved to Jamaica, I couldn't just run for president of Jamaica. I couldn't just run um, for some type of government seat and expect them to just vote for me because I'm black and the people who I'm, you know, living around. Because there are, of course, Jamaica's a national identity. It doesn't mean everybody in Jamaica is black. But I just mean that if I was running for a seat in an area that was predominantly black, they're not just going to vote for me just because I'm the same color as them or I'm from within the phenotype of blackness. Because their idea is, yeah, you're black racially, but you're not Jamaican culturally or nationally. Even if you became a citizen, even if I became a citizen of Jamaica, right? I haven't lived in that country for multiple generations. My ancestors are not in that dirt. They're not buried in the soil. They didn't fight in the wars. They didn't deal with the civil unrest. They didn't deal with the discrimination. So it doesn't mean that I'm not treated a certain way because I'm also black, but it means that I have I don't have skin in their game. And it's got to be that way on both sides. You have got to acknowledge that lineage is important for things like this. And for many of these groups of people, it has been important historically. I mean, I as a black American can tell you that, you know, people who are Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Latinx, who are, you know, mainland Africans who've come over, they don't see themselves as African-Americans the way I'm an African-American because they have different lineages and they have different ethnicities and different backgrounds. So we all share a common collective experience as like identifiably black people within the country, but the lineages are different. So again, this isn't a wild concept, but I know some people are trying to say that it's divisive to say that, you know, this should be for black Americans whose families have been here for multiple generations, but it does need to be. Again, I can't just move to another country. And even if I was there and had a kid there, it doesn't mean that I get to cash in on something when they're finally given reparative justice for the things that they have suffered within their country for multiple generations and spanning multiple centuries. 
And like I mentioned before, considering the history of people who have been able to cash in on things that were specific, like as Lyndon Johnson even said, some of these things were specifically designated in the 1960s and even again in later in the 1980s for people who had the lineage of having enslavement, having been in the nation in the 19th century, but it did not go to them. Largely, it went to people who immigrated recently and they were able to capitalize on that because everyone else understands lineage and the people in power understand lineage. They made sure that they could give those people these jobs and these positions and these resources. And they said, well, look, we gave it to black people. It's like, yes, but it wasn't the people who have been systemically harmed. So if anyone has questions about that, I'm you know more than willing to talk about it, but I don't want it to seem like it's intentionally divisive right, or divisive because it's not. It's something that everybody does. It's just people are not used to black Americans being very intentional about our lineages and how when it comes time to talking about the things that have historically happened, how we have not been able to benefit from things that were supposed to be passed in our favor because of the harm that was done. And also I'm hoping that once California does this, that other states will follow suit and that other residents within states will use the same legislation and you know, press their representatives to do the same thing. Part of what needs to happen is people need to know off the top of their head who their representatives are. They need to go to these meetings and, you know, when people are canvassing and trying to get you to vote a certain way in these other states, you need to ask them, so what are you going to do about reparations? Because this is what California has said, and we want to know when you're going to do that here. And if you're not going to do that for us, then we're not going to vote for you. Because we have a specific claim, like these things have happened in all U.S. states, Now, it should be done federally, but we know that that's largely probably not going to (laughs) happen. But California does lead the way. Hey, California, right? California does tend to lead the way on these types of things, and other states do follow. So the Crown Act was first passed in California. That was passed also by Gavin Newsom. And that's something that picked up in other states, and then it was finally made federal. So we'll see how this goes. But I am going to leave off for today. I just wanted to give an update because I thought it was very, very important. Like I said, I will link this article in the description of the podcast, but please make sure you check out the first podcast I did about this. It's called Reparations Y'all, and I titled this one Reparations Y'all Part 2, so it'll be easy to find. So thank you all for listening. As always, have a beautiful rest of your day or evening, and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.